0: Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Ballant. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. I have a returning guest in Professor Steve uh, Stephen Mourmeil. How have you been, sir? I've been well. Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. I had you on about a year ago, speaking specifically about Supreme Court and and some of the uh, history of that. Uh, We did touch on some of the potential rulings that were expected to come out that have been released over the last year, some that a lot of people question. There's rumors or thoughts that the Supreme Court has been, for lack of a better term, weaponized uh, for the hardcore right just the way that the hardcore right seems to think that the department of justice has been weaponized by the left. So uh, I guess it really depends on where you stand. What is your overall take for the last year or so of, of what's gone on from your, your knowledge and experience? Uh,
1: it's a pretty overwhelming 12 months in, in Supreme court history, the overruling of the right to abortion, uh, the expansion of gun rights, um, the, the, justices in, I think, unprecedented ways, taking pot shots at each other and the court over the summer and into the fall and and even continuing recently. And I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that. Um, They have dramatically altered the balance of separation between church and state and and, uh, looking ahead uh, I think they're uh, on the verge of ending affirmative action in higher education. Uh, so it, it it is quite a kind of tumultuous and, and uh, important period.
0: So a number of the things that you've that you mentioned um, specifically, you know, the, the overturning of versus Wade with the decision that it's, it should be brought to the, the states. What happens when the states impose laws that? violate the Constitution again. Because it kind of seems, you know, from my perspective, that a handful of the states that are kicking out these hard anti-abortion laws kind of seems like it does violate some of the the core tenets of the Constitution of of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And I'm not sure if I have a bigger problem with the court that is supposed to remain objective and, and look at the way things to the word of the constitution, or if it's the volume of people in elected positions who have displayed through their own words, their complete lack of understanding of the constitution and what it entails.
1: So to the first
0: part of your, of your
1: point, um, I think the Supreme court has kind of washed its hands of this with, with maybe a couple of exceptions if the right to abortion doesn't exist in the Constitution in any way, shape, or form, then if states restrict abortion to the extreme, presumably that does not raise an issue that the Supreme Court is gonna get back into. The exception, which I don't know yet how narrow or how broad this is, but there is a federal statute. Well, it could be a couple of federal statutes. There's a federal statute that says emergency rooms around the country are not supposed to turn anybody away. They're supposed to provide emergency care. And it seems like a couple of the state laws, which are banning abortion period and, and banning a specific procedure may be in violation of that federal law. The, the effect of a state law may be that somebody who shows up at the emergency room having a miscarriage um, can't get treated because it would violate the state's abortion law. So we have a constitutional principle called supremacy or, or preemption, whichever term you want to use, that if a state law directly interferes with the effect of federal law, and if Congress has made it clear that that the federal law um, is is sort of all-encompassing, then the state law may be unconstitutional, not because it violates a right to abortion, but because it clashes with federal law in a way that violates the supremacy of federal law. So that's one, I'm not gonna say a foot, let's say a toe, Um, that that might end up back in the Supreme Court. A, a, A second that we really don't know the dimensions of is the states that are trying to say that any resident of this state who goes to another state for an abortion or any person in this state who helps somebody go to another state to obtain an abortion is committing a crime that may violate that that possibly could violate a constitutional right to travel, although the contours of that right and the location of that right in the Constitution is somewhat ambiguous. Um, but, but nevertheless, an issue that that could come back to the Supreme Court. Those are really the main. I think, ways that this might end up back in the Supreme Court. The idea that this may fall more heavily on people of a particular age or people of a particular income level or people of a particular race, um, I don't think the court is going to go there. Um, I think that's
0: up to the state. So the only way you really foresee it, ever getting back in front of the justices in the Supreme Court is is kind of a on the peripheral, not not directly a anti abortion or pro abortion point, but how some of the laws that are being enacted are violating other aspects of the Constitution.
1: Yeah, I I, I hesitate to call them nuts and bolts because I think that makes them sound too unimportant and mm-hmm. they are quite important, but, but in a sense they are the mechanics of how the state is going to, the states are going to enforce their abortion laws now, rather than the the sort of underlying fundamental question of of does the Constitution have anything to say about abortion? Um, I think the only way we get back to that issue is you know somewhere in the Next half century, we get a different court and somebody challenges a state law again and as violating the, uh, asserting that there is a constitutional right to abortion again and maybe the court overrules the other way.
0: Kind of brings me to the, uh, another point. There's a very clear, in my opinion, point, kind of right smack in the First Amendment about the separation of church and state. And you have had a number of elected officials during their campaigns over the last few months push for this Christian nationalist perspective agenda. You had one, uh, one person absolutely sit on a pulpit and say that it's not the job of the government to guide people, but it's the job of the Bible to guide the constitution. And I've had a number of conversations with people, and I've, I've pointed out, you know, the words of Jefferson, Madison, Thomas Paine, and a few others that very clearly stated that our country wasn't founded on a Christian principle, um, and that there absolutely needs to be the separation of church and state for a number of reasons. What is your take on on this this push and and some of these people who are? unfortunately reelected who clearly don't understand the document that they're supposed to be sworn to uphold and, and, and guide them.
1: Uh, I'll answer you in a second, but let me tell you a great line, um, which is attributed to a, a former constitutional law professor, colleague of mine, now a leading member of Congress, Jamie Raskin a Democrat from Maryland who, you know, helped prosecute against Trump in the, the, the second impeachment trial and was on the January 6th committee. And at one point, I don't think this is an exact quote, but, but I'll do my best. He's, he was testifying at a hearing, I think in the Maryland legislature, and this kind of question came up. And Jamie said, sir, you may recall that you put your hand on the Bible and took an oath to protect the constitution. You didn't put your hand on the constitution and take an oath to protect the Bible. And that to me, I mean, we'll talk about it obviously, but that to me kind of says it all. Yeah. I think that the, as radical as the overruling of Roe versus Wade in the last couple of years, is the supreme court's dismantling of the separation of church and state and um, it's not happenstance it's quite a conscious coordinated attack by, by the majority so that the people that you're talking about are not necessarily out of the mainstream i'm afraid to say the the presumption that we once had that that comes you know that goes First back to Jefferson, and then to an opinion in the 40s by Justice Hugo Black. Jefferson said we should have a wall of separation between church and state. And Hugo Black in 1947, in an opinion, said that that wall should be high and impregnable. And and that dominated our uh, religion clauses court decision making for four decades let's say Um, but in the last two and more specifically in the last few years um, the the court has really been dismantling that wall if you don't mind my quoting myself i was on a panel in, in uh, July, where I said that the, the Supreme Court had turned the wall of separation into a speed bump. And, and that's really what they're doing. They, The court has virtually written the establishment clause out of the Constitution. Um, it, it has so narrowed the meaning of the establishment clause to, to basically mean nothing more than that we don't have an official church. Right. Um, and, and it has flipped the emphasis so that everything is now about the Free Exercise Clause. And anybody who makes a, a claim to religious freedom, religious exercise, religious values, seems like they are likely to win in the current court. And if I can add one more thought, which bothers me equally, in the last couple of years, the court has doubled up on the free exercise clause by finding that some aspects of religious speech should also be protected by the free speech clause. So that if a, if a jurisdiction of a state uh, passes a law and says, because of the establishment clause, we thought we needed to treat religion differently than other activities or other entities, the Supreme Court now is saying, well, not only can you not fall back on the establishment clause to make that argument, you're violating the free exercise clause, but you may also be discriminating against somebody's speech because the content of the speech involves religion. And so you're violating the free speech clause as well as the free exercise clause. And, and, Justice Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, in the coach this in the decision this past term involving the football coach in Washington State who wanted to pray on the fifty-yard line after football games, Gorsuch said that, that that's why we have a free speech clause. He said that the the framers um, were worried about people being persecuted for their religious speech. And that's why we have both the Free Exercise Clause and the Free Speech Clause that, that that the framers intended to provide double protection for religious speech. And, you know, he said that as if it was a well-established, long-understood um, principle. I, it's, I've been teaching First Amendment for 30 years, and it's news to me.
0: Can, can you elaborate a little bit on the establishment clause and the, the other clause you mentioned? Yeah. So um,
1: the, the First Amendment has what, what we call two religion clauses. One says that government may not um, um, create an establishment of religion. And the other says nor interfere with the free exercise of religion. What we have understood for the last 60 years, 70 years, or going all the way back to Jefferson, if you think that's appropriate, is that the Establishment Clause is where we find the separation of church and state. Establishment Clause, and this is sort of the current controversy, so let me me frame it. The current view is that the Establishment Clause meant nothing more and means nothing more today than that the federal government can't create a national religion and can't impose a religion on the states or can't interfere with the states if the states have a religion. Now, that's, that's the narrowest version of the Establishment Clause. The Establishment Clause, at its broadest, in the 60s and 70s, basically is why the Supreme Court said there shouldn't be organized prayer in public schools. Uh, It's why the Supreme Court said you uh, have to, to avoid having government aid go directly to religious institutions. That's that's where a lot of that notion of separation of church and state came from. So the the court established a a fairly well-known test. I don't want to get too jargony, but uh, the test is called the Lemon test after a case called Lemon versus Kurtzman decided in the early 70s. That was the Establishment Clause test. You had to, if the government passed a law, that an implicated religion, you had to ask whether that law had a secular purpose, a non-religious purpose. And you had to ask whether that law had a non-religious effect. If the answer was yes, it had a secular purpose and a non-religious effect, then it could survive. But if the purpose of the law seemed to be to promote religion or, or the principal effect was to advance religion then the court would say those laws violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. An example is, uh, uh, I don't remember the year exactly, you'll forgive me, sometime in the 80s, the Supreme Court decided a case in which Louisiana passed a law that required teachers in the state to teach creationism alongside evolution. And Louisiana legislature said it was passing that law to promote academic freedom, that teachers didn't know that they had a right to teach uh, alternatives to evolution or anything in addition to evolution when it came to that part of the, the biology curriculum um, or science curriculum. Um, and the court struck down Louisiana law and said the sole purpose of requiring the teaching of, ev- of, of creationism or authorizing the teaching of creationism is to promote religion. Right. It's a religious doctrine. You're promoting religion. That's creating an establishment of religion by the state of Louisiana. It's unconstitutional. That's the other end of the spectrum. That's the wall versus the speed bump, if you will. The Free Exercise Clause historically protected individuals' right to um, practice their faith. Um, And and the most controversial cases in the 60s and 70s, and and now this is kind of flipped in in a fascinating way, the most controversial cases in the 60s and 70s all involved unemployment compensation, state unemployment, compensation. You're a seventh day Adventist who can't work on Saturday because that's your Sabbath. And your employer says you have to work on Saturday. And you say, well, I can't. And the employer says, well, I I can't accommodate you otherwise. So you're fired. You go to file unemployment for unemployment insurance and the unemployment commission says, well, you were fired for cause. Um, And if you're fired for cause, you don't get to collect unemployment compensation. And the Supreme Court in several cases reversed those rulings and said that a state has to have a very good reason for not accommodating the individual's religious beliefs. Um, It's not just a given that the employer can fire you rather than have to try to accommodate um your your religious interest that was the that was the free exercise clause in the 60s and 70s it's now totally flipped so the free exercise clause now is protecting majoritarian religions it's protecting the coach uh, you know who's a, who's a good christian and wants to pray at the football game um you know it's protecting all kinds of religious interests Uh, it's protecting Catholic orders that don't want to be forced to to have to provide insurance for contraception for their employees. It's, um, you know, it's not really about minority religions anymore that were being persecuted or felt they were being treated unfairly. Now it's become majority religions that feel that they're being treated unfairly.
0: It sounds to me that the, this big push from some of the the people that are pushing the Christian nationalism are trying to really destroy the Establishment Clause. And it kind of brings us around to the question I have about the 50s, early mid-50s, and the McCarthyism. And we have him to thank for the fact that I, I think one of the points that always gets thrown back to is you you look at some federal items where we look at money or things of that nature. And it's, everything is in God we trust. People don't seem to realize that that hasn't been the motto for the eternity of, of, of our country. That all came about in the fifties and the whole red scare taking the Supreme court out of it at the moment. What would it take to have that, those few words taken back off of, off of money to, and, and out of the government? Because quite honestly, it, it really, in my opinion, should have never been there. And, and I think that the founding fathers would probably turn in their graves if they saw it. What do you think it would take for that kind of verbiage to be removed from the, the, the governmental language? Well, let me back up a second before
1: I answer that because you said the people who are trying to destroy the establishment clause, and I just want to be clear from my standpoint, their names are Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, John Roberts, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, um, et cetera, Uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, I think they really are trying, not trying, I think they basically have rendered the establishment clause almost a nullity um, in, in a series of recent decisions. Right. Now, back to your question, it, 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 I don't want to be coy. <laughs> you know, they say that in law school, the answer to every question is it depends. Right. It, it sort of depends on, on when or in what context I'm asking that question. What would it take today with the current Supreme Court there's not a chance uh, on the face of the earth, right? If anything, if, if Congress came to the current Supreme court and said, we want to put in God, we trust in flashing neon lights, the Supreme court would say, cool. Right. So, so answering it in that sense, you know, we're not, we're not going there. I mean, I think the, Agreed. The, the current court recognizes that, that, Well, that's part of the whole point, is that the current court doesn't think the Establishment Clause has anything to say about those things. The current court thinks that those are um, uh, attributes of free exercise of religion that uh, that the government should interfere with, or that the government can promote, as in, in God we trust. Now, just one other note, and then I'll further develop the answer. The the conservatives on the current court would dispute the idea that this is somehow ahistorical. I mean, they would cite you know George Washington's Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. Proclamation, which referred to God and was a public document, Um, and 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 they would cite other references to God back at the at the founding, and they would so they would argue that the religion clauses were never intended to do what the court seemed to be doing in the 60s and 70s, which was kind of drive religion out of the public square. Um, their, their position is that that was never the purpose of the First Amendment, uh, that, the, that the framers were perfectly comfortable with religion in the public square. Now, that's sort of contradicted by Jefferson's you know, letter to the, to the Baptist ministers in, w- in which he used the Wall of Separation um, imagery. The, the court has said a number of things, and, and it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint one particular one, but, but the court decided, I think, in the 1980s, a case involving a chaplain Who started the day in the Nebraska State Legislature every day. And that was challenged as violating the Establishment Clause. And the court said the purpose of the chaplain was not to promote religion. The purpose of the chaplain was to sort of solemnize the the beginning of the legislative day. You know, hey you legislators, we want you to focus and do your work thoughtfully and seriously, and, and so we're kind of praying for your wisdom and, and, and insight and, and integrity and, and so on. The court didn't use this term in that case, but commentators, and, and this ties back to your question, commentators have described that idea as something called ceremonial deism, meaning references to God or references to religion in which we're not referencing that for the purpose of promoting religion. We're not saying, please pray with me or believe in my God or something like that. We're sort of acknowledging that, that religion exists and plays a role in our in our lives and our society. Now, you know, ceremonial deism isn't any more in the constitution than um, separation of church and state is. Um, and, and so kind of holding that up as an explanation doesn't necessarily make it right. right. Um, that said, there are examples, I mean, you using one example, but there are examples all over, the place. I mean, the, the invocation at the start of the Supreme Court session every day is, is God save this honorable court. Um, you know, in God we trust. Um, the Pledge of Allegiance has the words under God in it. Um, there, there are a lot of places in which there are those kinds of references. And you think the court's answer would be that those are ceremonial. Now, the only thought I would add to that is, is I think that if you said to the current court, are those only permissible because they're ceremonial? I think the current court would say, no, I think it would be fine
0: if they weren't just there alone. The current majority on the, on the bench, uh, as you mentioned Um, one in particular has kind of have a number of potential problems surrounding him and specifically the, the actions of his wife and her involvement leading up to the January 6th. What possible actions could happen to him? Is it possible for him to be removed from the bench for his especially with some of the emails that have come out that he was aware of certain things. Is it possible for him to be removed from the bench?
1: I mean, the only way you can remove a justice from the bench is is impeachment. Same process as the president. The house has to bring charges and vote by a majority vote to impeach somebody. And then the Senate has to conduct trial and convict somebody and the remedy for the conviction would have we would have to vote that the remedy was removal from office you know i don't see that happening even if it gets somewhat worse right i don't really see that happening not with the republicans
0: taking the house
1: back the republicans take over the house for sure um but i don't think even the democrats would have would have done that The, you know, the, the, the obvious point there, a couple of obvious points, but one is you could have a justice who violates ethics rules and yet, um, continues to be a justice because there's no recourse other than impeachment. Um, you know, the other justices can't remove a justice. The president can't fire a justice. Um, And so they are the masters of their own housing. And and so even with Justice Thomas, I'm not 100% convinced that he has actually committed unethical conduct. I believe he has been extremely insensitive to the appearance of impropriety, Mm. which is typically part of the ethical equation. In fact, I think he probably doesn't care one whit about the appearance of impropriety, right. and and so you know he's not going to, in any way, limit himself. Um, to me, the the closest call is the most recent one, where he participated in the court's decision on whether to have the chair of the Arizona Republican Party. Um, turn over her phone records to the January 6th committee. Um, And he dissented from the court's decision that, that she has to turn over the phone records. And I mean, that's, you know, Ginny Thomas, his wife, was calling Arizona Republicans to try to get them to put forward an alternate slate of electors. So that seems to be you know if you're if you're both acting on the same page kind of right then,
0: then that's at the very least a pretty strong appearance of him right or at least he's trying to protect his wife from further trouble that i think she might have because from what i understand or, or my understanding of her testimony under oath is you know her and her husband didn't speak about anything but there's been some pretty damning proof that it says otherwise. Um, right.
1: But then if she, if she, if he is trying to protect her, then that further undermines his claim right. that he doesn't know anything about any of this. And so I, you know, I think he's, I I, I think he's walking a tightrope and, and kind of slipping off it on both sides, but he won't fall to the ground because that would only happen with impeachment.
0: Right. With ethics being such a crucial component, in my opinion, and I'm sure other people's opinion, for Supreme Court justices, how do you think we could remedy making them accountable to, to a certain set of ethics? And I understand that that's a loaded question and probably almost impossible answer because then the question becomes, well, who decides what is and what is ethical? Clearly somebody where a group of people have established and redefined ethics when it comes to law because, as lawyers, you have a code of ethics. But if the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, doesn't have any stringent ethical standards, but every other court does, how can we make that right or, or correct it, correct that, that lack of ethics, defined ethics, to, for the Supreme Court?
1: So the answer is not easily. <laughs> they are bound by the, the. There, there are two sources of judicial ethics in the federal courts. There is a statute, and then there's the code of of judicial conduct. They are bound by the statute, but the statute governs primarily financial conflicts of interest, or or you know maybe direct conflicts of interest. I mean, if you're Uh, You shouldn't rule on a case in which, you know, your wife is is the lawyer in the case or uh, or something like that. And you shouldn't be voting in cases in which you have direct financial interests. And they do have to comply with that. They're not immune from federal law. But they are not covered by the Code of Judicial Conduct, which applies to all other federal judges. And um, they I don't know exactly how you would make them subject to that. Um, Congress could amend the law and say Supreme Court justices shall be bound by the Code of Judicial Conduct. They probably are not likely to do that. Um, As you pointed out, Michael, there are definitional problems. I, you know, you there are answers. I don't know if they're good answers or or how practical they are. You could have a uh, for, for lack of a better term, bipartisan committee of justices. You could say uh you know, two liberals and two conservatives are gonna sit on the the ethics committee and uh, they have the right they don't have the right to discipline somebody because you can't really do that with the Supreme Court, but they have the right to issue a letter to Clarence Thomas, saying knock it off, right? Um, or, or you know, or to, to the liberal justice is the case maybe. I and mean, when Justice Ginsburg was alive and uh, said a couple of derogatory things about Trump, she got a lot of blowback that what she had done was inappropriate. You know, that's possibly a way to go. It it couldn't be a commission that had any special authority other than to issue advisory opinions to the justices. The only way you could make them more directly accountable would obviously be by federal statute. And um, again, I think you would have definitional problems. I mean, you know, I would imagine a... A code of judicial conduct would say, for example, a judge's spouse is entitled to live his or her own life and have his or her own profession, uh, but should be careful to avoid steps that compromise the ability of the justice to participate in cases. Well, that's fine. I could write that, but then how do you, you know, when, when is that being violated? When isn't it being right? Violated? Jim, Ginny Thomas would take the language. I just gave you and say, Oh, cool. I'm, I'm in the clear. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it becomes problematic. I think
0: what this shows over the last year or so is the lack of, of accountability, and, and the ability to hold those in those seats to an ethical standard with, with some sort of repercussions. You know, that, as you pointed out, they, they literally have none. They can do as they please. And, and when they're not being impartial, there's no recourse. There's, there's no way to, to say, hey, that's clearly a impartial decision you're making yeah,
1: I mean, I think we envision, although maybe this is no longer true, but I think we envision that if we discovered that uh, a justice was regularly voting in cases and profiting in the stock market from the decisions in those cases, then you could now document that ex-justice had Made you know dollars off off his vote. In, in 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 a couple of cases involving a particular company, I think maybe there's a chance that even as partisan and divided as we are, that that might be impeachable. But I think that's about as far as it goes. I don't think you're going to get agreement. Uh, you know the. Federalist society and, and and the conservative Republicans and Clarence Thomas is, is somewhere between a hero and a patron saint right they're not going to want to remove him for anything
0: speaking of the the, the Federal society I kind of see it hypocritical in, in some of their the positions they take They they take their name from a group of of some of the founders that created the federal you know the Federalist movement, so to speak, um, which was to promote federalism and, and the, the Constitution. But it was kind of counter to my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, to the the idea that the Constitution is a living document open for interpretation along the lines of, of common sense. And I think I might have just answered my own question, but we have a lack of common sense, I think, with the people that are in our government at the moment. How do we parse out the people that are truly driving to an extreme end of things and alienating the the vast majority of of Americans while kind of still being stuck with the justices that we have? Is there any remedy or or course of action given a divided Congress as well? Or is it just going to be a... Lack of better term, shitty two years. Um, I don't know that there is any way to do anything about that.
1: The the uh, I mean, we could talk about that in the, in terms of the different branches of government. Um, it is both striking and appalling to me the degree to which the the Congress increasingly fills up with legislators who don't want to legislate and and part of the don't want to legislate idea is they certainly aren't going to work with people across the aisle so the you know the notion that divided government means that you compromise and figure out ways to work together is you know, about as foreign as uh, as could possibly be. uh, Yeah. You know, the Supreme Court, I mean, the one check on the Supreme Court in this system is that it is limited to taking the cases that come to it. It doesn't reach out and, and say, oh, you know, here's something I think we ought to tackle let's let's decide this issue they can do that but it has to be in the context of cases that are presented to them and that is a somewhat limiting factor although as we now see if you wait long enough uh, everything will come their way sooner or later right um you know i don't think there's a way to change the way the court works. Um, I don't think any of the, I'm I'm not a big fan of any of the reform proposals and I don't think any of them are going to pass anyway, but we we can come back to that if you want. So I don't know. I I mean, I guess I, I think we're, we're stuck if the, if the conservative um, house starts to do you know, outlandish things and they can somehow get the Senate to go along. The Sprint board might be a check, but but I wouldn't count on that. So I think that, that um, I don't know whether the, fram- I don't know what the framers thought about this level of division in, in government, division to the point of, of stalemate.
0: Yeah, I think that's where we are is you, you have over the last few years it's a matter of to private organizations that people don't seem to realize are not part of the government, but they are the government, have absolute control over the decisions and the movement that goes on in the government as far as legislation and such. And when you have groups of people who are so ideologically opposed and willingly and otherwise ignorant to what they're doing, it makes it impossible for the government to actually function. I mean, you have people who have run and sat on Congress for the last two years and had literally done nothing but be outspoken channels of insanity. Lauren Boebert is a perfect example where she has passed literally nothing. She hasn't done anything for her constituents. She's been, nothing has even gotten out of committee. she, She's literally done nothing but be an outspoken outlet of of stupidity, and she just got reelected by the slimmest of margin. But you have this this push for people who who fall into that area that literally, as you said, they don't want to do their job. Their job is to to go to their go to the D.C. and and push forth legislation that's going to benefit their constituents. And their constituents aren't all Christians, their constituents are, you know, a small sample of the United States to a degree.
1: Now we're going to see a sea change because they're going to have the power to convene investigative committees and and investigate, you know, I don't know how much they'll be able to do since their majority in Congress is going to be narrow. Right. But I think they'll be able to, they still won't legislate, but they'll be able to create a lot of mischief
0: as uh, yeah i mean they've been calling for biden's impeachment since before he was even sworn in yeah, uh, yeah. the only saving grace to that notion is kind of the I'll call it the, the trump clause is the senate's not going to vote for it um, you're not going to get the votes in it so they can waste all the time that they want in the house for their impeachment proceedings and pass their slimmest margin of impeachment measure but it won't go anywhere in the senate
1: you know, the question is, will there be enough um, moderate or maybe the term I want to say is principled Republican who won't simply vote for every subpoena that some House committee wants to issue to, you know, to uh, the Attorney General basically, you know, the, the, I mean... If you listen to them, you would think Merrick Garland might as well move to Capitol Hill for the next two years. <laughs> you know, he's not he's not gonna have any time to spend in the Justice Department. He's gonna be appearing before congressional committees day in and day out, you know, nonstop. Maybe there are some Republicans who are principled enough to say, Hey, this is crazy and why don't we actually try legislating?
0: I'm I, I wish we had more people that were principled in those positions. It's going to be a interesting congressional class to, to see how things go, for lack of a better term. I've, I've been here for a little more than 50 minutes. I, I greatly appreciate your insight and your your time, and I might pester you again in about a year to, to see how things, have, uh, how things have changed. Happy to, happy to keep at it. Stay well and healthy, and and I thank you for your time, sir. You too. Be well, and and I'll talk to you in a year, if not before. Absolutely. Take care. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.